0: This podcast episode is made possible by the Veterans Breakfast Club. For over 10 years throughout Western Pennsylvania, the Veterans Breakfast Club has been creating communities of listening around veterans and their stories. For more information about veterans' storytelling events near you, visit veteransbreakfastclub.com. So the Naval Hospital
1: denied my request for a ride kit. I was released from the hospital... And because I was a minor, I had to go to legal for underage drinking. And I was being interviewed by Petty Officer Lewis. We'll always remember her name. And I, again, asked for a rape kit. And she said, I think you're just trying to get out of trouble. And so that was the second time I was denied a rape kit. This is Amanda Leanne cell and you're listening to the MST Podcast.
0: When my story is told, other stories can unfold.
1: It's still uncomfortable for some people to talk about,
2: you're old enough to raise your right hand and join the military. We're old enough to talk about sex.
0: Then maybe we need to think about that we're not ready for this situation.
2: Once you tell your story, you might give others the strength to do so.
0: That's how I found the strength. I wasn't ready to deal with my MST. But when I started hearing others start telling their stories, there were other survivors. And when they started talking to me, I was like, I'm not alone. And then it was this real openness that I can deal with this. There would be help.
2: Well, first of all, Amanda, is it Amanda Leanne? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, my first name
1: is Amanda Leanne. I have a middle name, and thanks, Mom and Dad, for making my life really hard growing
2: up. Amanda Leanne Brunzel? That is correct. Yep. (laughs) Okay, so I have that down. Uh, It is a beautiful name, but Amanda, you sent me, and I was basically a perfect stranger to you, and I just want to say this starting off as a testament to kind of this, invisible kind of bond that mst survivors have not really knowing one another you sent me your story typed out i have it here in front of me i've read it a few times you know three pages of probably the worst times of your life so i wanted to start by thanking you for that trust um and for sending that to me months ago i know it took me a few months here to get the mst podcast up and running but thank you so much for that um and for being willing to come on today and talk with us
1: well i think it's really important i know for me for healing You know, I wasn't able to tell my story for 13 years until I was in a room full of other veterans. I left November. I was really honored to be a part of um, Common Defense's Veterans Organizing Institute. And I am a transsexual woman, and we were... Talking about, you know, our fears and stuff and what had shaped us in our LGBTQ caucus. And that was the first time after 13 years I had told my story because it was such a safe space. And I realized after I told it, I wasn't the only person who had a story like that. And beyond that, it felt really empowering to get it off my chest especially how my story happened, especially the aftermath or other veterans who are like, keep fighting because you need to hold the Navy accountable. And that's why I tell my story. I believe that with me telling my story, other women may be empowered to tell their story and file claims and get benefits that are owed to them. You know, we don't talk about it. And, you know, I, I know you talked with Heath Phillips. And I mean, this was over 20 years ago, people are still suffering. I I knew this interview was coming up. And I, I've i been having nightcares reliving my my rape the last couple of weeks, knowing this is coming up. And, you know, it goes to show it's Still affecting me, you know, 14 years later.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. We, we just hung up uh, with Heath a little while ago and what you're doing it's, and he, you know, was definitely on the same page as us, Amanda, because what, by telling your story, just like, because I said, our, Heath, how can we be sure that we're helping people? We're putting ourselves through the, through this stress. You know, I said, every time I do this, I have all the physiological effects, you know, sweaty hands, and I'm I'm a little nervous, even though I'm not sharing my story, yeah. but I, I feel it. And he said, there's absolutely no doubt in his mind that it's helping. He said he's, he's, you know, had guys come up to him, say, I'm leaving. After hearing your speech, I'm literally leaving here and going to see the victim advocate. Um, so he reassured me. So I want to pass that along to you because if it weren't for you, I would never have met Heath and I wouldn't have had him on the show. So, I mean, he was, he was just great to interview and the things that he said, he's gave us confirmation that we are helping by doing this, despite all of the uh, stress that we have to go through, you know, to kind of get to this point. And I asked him and I'll ask you the same thing. Why do you think it takes us so long? I mean, for me, it was, I don't know, maybe like 15 years, um, him, you know, it was 20 years, you're 13 years later, um. Why do you think it takes so long for us to kind of get through all the rest of the mess and be ready to talk about it? I mean, what was it for you?
1: Um, because of the command abuse after my rape, I didn't talk about it, and that—that that was my choice. And there's been some arguments between survivors over which is works: the rape or the command abuse that comes after it, and. For me, the reason why I didn't talk about mine is I felt guilt and shame, which is weird because in 2009, I, I was raped again. And during that rape, I felt no shame. I knew I did nothing wrong. Whereas in the military, uh, with my command saying, oh, you're just trying to get out of trouble or, you know, you drink too much. And it's like, They blamed me, the victim. And yet here I am, you know, for years trying to work to overcome that, to try to do good deeds because I got an OTH because of my PTSD. And yeah, I just, I didn't talk about it because I felt guilty. And honestly, it was because of one of my friends, another member of uh, the Veterans Organizing Institute, He came up to me afterwards. And like I said before, he told me, no, you fight. You're just as much as a veteran as I am.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Fight for what you deserve. Hold the Navy accountable. And so that's sort of what I want to do now is advocate for MST victims. You know, one in six women in the military are affected by assault and one in 10 males are. So it's not just a female thing, and we have to we have to acknowledge it because if we don't, we can't fix the problem.
2: You're exactly right. Well, let's uh, let's talk about it. You know, let's um, let's just jump into it, Amanda. Uh, however, you know, you feel comfortable. Um, but what you know, really, what I want us to focus on right now is. Um, And for the theme of our podcast, you know, is really on the other side of it, you know, the incident and all its gory details um, is not really what we like to focus on here. It's about the aftermath and how you made it through and where you found the hope and how you made it through to the other side, to you, you know, thriving today from victim to survivor to thriver. We, we've, this has started to become a trend Yes, and I love that trend, you know, and I think it's important to know like from women, women and men who've experienced this, how do you come out on the other side? How do you get to that finish line and look back and say, wow, I, I I finally ran the race and now here we go. We're going to begin this healing because your yours was back in 2004 In April, right? Yes. April 14th. Worst day of my life. Worst day of your life. But you also had a few things that really, like, really must have shaken the bedrock of your life because it was not only a rape. You had some other health issues at the same time that were life-threatening. And I feel like you just Uh, got hit from all sides. I had a brain tumor.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, this is my story. I um, had not been feeling well for a while. Uh, Went to medical. They ran some tests. Tested my hormones. And then they sent me out into town to see an endocrinologist and come to find out I, I had a brain tumor. And uh, I got that news that day. and um,
2: The same day that you were assaulted by a, a, um, a fellow military member, you got the news you had a, a brain tumor. That's what you're saying? Yes. Oh, my God.
1: So I I was diagnosed with my brain tumor, and I actually didn't know what the doctor said. Um, He called it a pituitary adenoma, which is exactly what it is. It's a, it's a tumor on the pituitary gland. So it was affecting all of my hormones. So I called my mom that afternoon after I got finished with that appointment. And my mother was a nurse. And when I told her what I had, she freaked out. I remember her saying like, what's your treatment plan? Like, do you need me to come down there? How are you feeling? And She was just freaking out. I'm like, Mom, I I feel fine. Like, I just am a little off. And she explained to me, because I was 20 at the time, that it was a brain tumor. And that's when it really, like, hit me hard. And I went to grab some dinner at the chow hall. And I called up my shipmate. His name's David from the St. Louis area. We were close. Uh, we were in school together. I was a few classes ahead of him. Um, mind you, this was at uh, Nazi in Pensacola. So it was the uh, Naval Aviation Technical Training School. So it was our age school. And I was visibly shaken when I went out to meet David. And uh, normally we would talk on the hood of his car Uh, but because of how shaken I was, we went in his car and things got a little uncomfortable and then things got really uncomfortable and everyone talks about fight or flight. Um, I didn't do either. I froze and it happened. And after the fact I got away from him, I was traumatized. I I called another friend up who had a birthday and um, asked him if he had any alcohol left over. And I ended up drinking a half gallon of Captain Morgan in about a 45-minute period. And I did that because I wanted the taste of him out of my mouth. I wanted the images that had gone through my head and what I felt. I didn't want to see or feel anything. I I was traumatized um, because I drank so much that night in such a short period. I don't remember getting back into the barracks, right. uh, but I guess I did. And I also forgot to turn my Liberty card in, which was the only saving grace, I guess, uh, because uh, the petty officer in charge came to my room little after midnight, found me completely unconscious unresponsive. And the paramedics had to be called because they didn't know what was happening. And I became combative with the paramedics. I don't remember this, but I was told I fought really hard when they tried to touch me, mm-hmm. which I can fully imagine me doing. I, along with other survivors, we sometimes have issues when people touch us um, because the, it's a It's a trigger for us. Mm -hmm. And it definitely was a trigger for me that night. Um, I came to in the Naval Hospital around 530 in the morning. I freaked out. I I remembered everything that happened the day before, not just the brain tumor, but also my rape. Mm -hmm. And I asked the corpsman for a rape kit and a rape test. And the corpsman said the reason why I feel funny down there is because I had a catheter put in me. And I knew that wasn't the reason why.
2: Mm -hmm. They denied you the rape kit? Yes. So the Naval Hospital denied
1: my request for a rape kit. I was released from the hospital. And because I was a minor, I was 20 at the time. It was about six months before my 21st birthday. I had to go to legal for underage drinking. And once again, uh, I was there. I was being interviewed or questioned by Petty Officer Lewis will always remember her name. Mm -hmm. And I, again, asked for a rape kit. And she said, I think you're just trying to get out of trouble. And so that was the second time I was denied a rape kit. Um, it, It was near lunch. So I went to lunch and I ate with one of my friends who was also a survivor. We were on bear support at the time. So she said, you know, after our... 1300 Muster, let's get in my car. I'll drive you to the civilian hospital. They won't deny you it there. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: that's exactly what we did. And the scary part was not even 20 minutes after I was in the room in the civilian hospital, a member of NCIS showed up. And her first question was, Why are you not at the naval hospital? Why are you at a civilian hospital? And it was at that point I had to explain. I asked twice, two times, they said, no. So what was I supposed to do? And so an NCIS case was opened up. And, you know, I totally forget NCIS officer's name, but she was amazing. And after a few days, David admitted to what he did. He didn't get NJP'd, but he did lose his schooling. So he lost his A-school. And because I was a minor who drank a lot of alcohol, I had to go through the Navy Substance Abuse Treatment Program. So I basically went to rehab in the Navy. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And that was about two months after I had been raped. And, you know, I always found it funny that I had to go to rehab was either go to rehab or go through NJP.
2: And that it blew my mind. Yeah. Like you said that NCIS agent you refer to her in your written story as your angel. Yeah. You know, she she really was.
1: And you know, I, I went through treatment and actually on day twenty eight of my treatment for substance abuse, my mother had a massive heart attack and I had to go home on emergency leave. And when I came back, um, that's when Hurricane Ivan hit Pensacola. And it it was less than 30 days after that, that I had gone into medical because I wasn't sleeping anymore. Mm -hmm. And they sent me over to mental health and they told me that I was bipolar, which wasn't true. I was depressed. I had anxiety. I had every symptom of PTSD. But women don't show PTSD like men do. For men, a lot of times it comes out as anger. For women, it comes out as depression. So a woman who's normally happy-go-lucky, you know, becoming depressed and not sleeping, they're like, oh, you're bipolar. You know, you have super high highs and now you're super low. So this is what you must be. Mm -hmm. And that was the wrong diagnosis. It took about three years later for me to get the right diagnosis by a civilian doctor, but yeah, you know, between my PTSD and my brain tumor, I was grounded and I I would not be able to finish out my contract in the military. Right, um, and because each of those things were so huge and just by themselves, my med board took over a year, and that was. A year of struggling and being at the same place where my rape occurred, I, I was hospitalized three times for at least a week and a half, if not more, at a time.
2: What were you, what were you hospitalized for, for depression or? Uh, depression. They, mm-hmm. they
1: marked it as depression, yeah. Right. Uh, which was true. I, I was severely depressed. Mm-hmm. I was dealing with two major things, well, four major things. It would include my mother and the hurricane, right. and the aftermath of that. I, I just, I was a mess. It, it was literally the perfect storm, and it came out to, I want to say, July of two thousand and five. Um, and I finally had my biggest breakdown of them all, mm-hmm. and I. I know I was getting bad. And so I requested to go on leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I had 26 days on the books and I know I was getting out soon, but I, I needed that time to like not push me over the edge. And they approved my leave and then we had another hurricane coming at us. I was supposed to start leave on Monday morning at 06 and I left Sunday night around 9.30 PM. Mm -hmm. And because of that short time period, they considered me UA. So it was unauthorized absence. They counted the whole thing. And when I got back to my command, uh, I was slightly better, but I had been off of my meds for about three weeks. And the very first thing that my psychiatrist did was have me hospitalized again, because I was that bad. And while I was in the hospital, I was discharged um, in absentee, and I was discharged with an other than honorable due to a pattern of misconduct. And that pattern was me drinking as a minor and then going away. So both things were related to my military sexual trauma.
2: And there was nothing in that paper trail about what David had done or anything, because as you mentioned, Pensacola got hit by Hurricane Ivan, and you, you said that all your records were, were destroyed, they were gone. You had no paper trail whatsoever um, of any of that other stuff. There was the, and we found this out
1: afterwards, my hospital visit to the ER that night, that was actually logged into my medical records,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, because it was at the Naval Hospital, which do you... The computer database at that time. So that was actually in there. And actually, earlier this year, I was actually able to read the full report of my care that night. Things I didn't know that uh, they had to give me Narcan because I wasn't breathing the way I should have, which freaked me out, um, especially knowing about the opioid epidemic now. Mm-hmm. You know, when I think of Narcan, I think you know, a uh, narcotics overdose, and to know that I had been given Narcan, you know, 14 years ago, and that's most likely what saved my life. Right. Um, it's kind of scary.
2: What happened that night, as horrible as it is, you know, those things did save your life. Uh, the system is terribly flawed in the Navy, but hey, at least that one part worked, right? <laughs> and you said, okay, so not only, I mean, in 2009, you said you were raped again, not while you were in the service when you were a civilian. And the woman at yes. NCIS did you a favor, right? Because you were able to get a rape yep. kit done that time. And tell us and the listeners what she did for you.
1: Yes, I was raped in 2009 here in my hometown. I was drugged with GHB, but had enough recollection of the night. I remembered seeing army fatigues in the room. And in my mind, something told me, like, check with the military. And after my rape kit was processed through the Michigan State Police um, and nothing was found, I called her up and asked her to run my kit against the database of DNA on file with the military. And my attacker actually—he was in the
2: army. He was home on leave, and uh, and he's in. Where is he at now? In prison. He was caught, and um, even beyond that, he uh, he was
1: discharged from the army with a dishonorable. And then he was actually uh, tried in a civilian court and found guilty. And that was because I had that connection with the military, mm-hmm. which goes to show, you know, when people think about the military, you know, for the most part, we're good people. We don't get in trouble. But there's always a few bad apples. And, you know, I, I came across one that night. I I was supposed to be the designated driver that night. And, you know, I have a tattoo on my back. It's, it's a tramp stamp. And it says, Navy bitch, welcome aboard. Which, yeah, you know, 15 years ago was funny. Still kind of funny. But my attacker, he saw... A, a tiny part of my tattoo. And uh, as the court records show, he said, any woman who has a tattoo like that is just deserving it and asking for it. You know, the difference between my two rapes is in my second rape, I knew there was nothing I did that deserves that. I did nothing to ask for it. And so hearing those words just made me angry.
2: Of course, yeah.
1: And, you know, I'm pretty progressive as a feminist. You know, I I truly believe a woman, doesn't matter, you know, what she's wearing or what she does for a living, consent is always mandatory. And that's even with, you know, hugging a woman or kissing them. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, my friends nowadays think it's funny, but, you know, like if someone tries to like, Hug me or something, I'll be like, hey, I didn't give you consent. Please, please don't touch me. Um, I actually just had a problem with this about two weeks ago during the rallies for the children who were separated from their families. I was one of the organizers for it and I was on stage um, in the back. I, I was actually sitting down because I had a broken foot and someone just got way too close to me and I started having a panic attack. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the aftermaths from my rapes is I, I get very uncomfortable being around a lot of people and I just, I can't do it. Don't touch me. You need my consent. And I think that's a huge thing no matter what, you know, I, I've been really blessed. I don't have children myself because I, I have issues with having relationships now, but all of my nieces, I, I have three nieces who, lives down the road from me. And all of them know people are not allowed to touch them unless they say so. You know, my four-year-old niece has multiple times told my father or grandpa, grandpa, don't touch me. Even though she's four, she knows people aren't allowed to touch her unless she says it's okay. And I think if we start building awareness and letting people vocalize that You know, I think it's a
2: good step. Absolutely. And for 13 years, you weren't vocal about it. You wrote to me that you can still hear the petty officer from legal say, well, you probably caused it and you've been blaming yourself for that and holding yourself responsible for getting in that car. And you say "Um, that ends now. And the more you talk to other female veterans, the the more that you realize that your story isn't uncommon. And when I hear you talking about these symptoms, right, of post-traumatic stress, of not wanting to be touched or hugged or things like that you know, it's kind of embarrassing. Like I'm 35, I'm, I don't, I'm not married. I don't have kids either. And it's like, you know, relationship issues is a huge part of this. And it's, it's kind of embarrassing thing. Yeah. But it's the fact that we get to talk about it in this way, I'm hoping might like make other survivors feel okay about that. You know, you can still be happy and not be married. You can still be happy and not have children. You can, you can get better. and Most you can definitely.
1: I can honestly say, since I first came out with my story, back in November. I've suffered from depression and anxiety that entire time. And it's pretty severe, so severe that I'm actually raising money for a service animal right now. I've got about $6,000 to go for it.
2: Oh, wow. That's amazing.
1: Yeah. But I, I have noticed the more I talk about it and the more open I am about it, the happier I am with my life it's taken so long. And I, I wrote about it uh, a couple weeks ago, you know, that life sucks sometimes, but it's how you react to it. Absolutely. And for me, keeping it inside of me, it festered and festered to the point where I couldn't do anything. And here I am, you know, six, seven months later, and I'm talking about my story on a podcast and being interviewed by my local television Mm -hmm. station. And the more I talk about it, the more involved I get with trying to solve this problem. So a few things on that. As a survivor, I have decided I'm sick of just surviving. I want to start thriving. And for me, that includes empowering other women. And that happens in a few ways. One, letting women know that they're not alone. And then also empowering them to say, by telling them my story and by saying David's name, it was empowering. That's the only way I can explain it. And so the hashtag has started. It's say his name. And that's to let people know you're not going to let your attacker control your life by saying his name or her name is empowering you to say they don't have control over you anymore.
2: That's very brave of you. So brave. In fact, last one I did a podcast last year and um one of my coworkers, Nick, he asked um, this girl, Nikki he said, why won't you, like, can you tell me who it is so I can go beat the shit out of him? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm going to track him down, That's, Nikki. Like, right. you know, and he's he was kidding. But, um, you know, we, we, it's so, it's terrible when you, you kind of feel like you don't have any way to get out of this mess when you keep it inside. Like you said, it was just like torturing you. And she said he didn't, she didn't want to say his name because he was like still stalking her and she had a little bit of a different situation. But she said, I will never let his name come out of my mouth. It's just, you know, it makes me sick to even think about it. So it's brave of you to do this. Every woman is different. and You know, I can look at
1: what's, what the difference is. You know, 13 years, it's not talking about it. And then seven months of actually talking about it. There is no amount of therapy (laughs) that could have helped me as much as saying his name and empowering and telling my story and empowering other women to tell their stories.
2: Would you encourage other women to not let it lapse like me 15 years and Amanda, you 13 years, like anyone who's listening, do you want to encourage them to say like, hey, don't even let it go? go for a decade, you know, don't let it go. Don't give it the power. Like I I just I know it's either easier said than done. But I just feel like that's so important, you know, really gotta it's so much
1: easier said than done. And I know this because I went 13 years without talking about it. And it wasn't until I was in a room with other veterans with similar experiences
0: Mm -hmm.
1: that I realized I wasn't alone. So there's actually a few things that I'm in a few projects that I've been working with um, as I've come out about my military sexual trauma. So I work with an amazing woman named Vivint and she uh, is uh, also uh, an MST survivor, and not just that, but she's another thriver. And we have a Facebook group, It's a secret group, so um, others actually can't see us because it's all about how to file your MST claim and exactly the order you need to do it, what you need. And we are now helping women file their claims. Um, Another thing that I'm working with is with a, a company out of D.C. It's called Unwanted. And its primary goal is to find a better way for reporting sexual assault. It's a think tank of survivors, uh, venture capitalists, the woman who wrote the article on um, sexual harassment in in Silicon Valley, dealing with Google and Apple, and we've all come together to try to figure out how to solve this problem on how to accurately, how can people report sexual trauma in a way that isn't intimidating for them, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: but also gives real results. And so really excited to start doing that work. Um, And lastly, uh, working with Common Defense, Um, Senator Kristen Gildebrand out of uh, New York uh, has proposed a portion of the defense spending bill for something called the Military Justice Improvement Act. And what that does is they want to make it so that a third party actually deals with all uh, sexual harassment and assaults in the military. And by doing that, it takes the... Well, it it starts getting rid of the command abuse that is very common for people uh, and women who report their uh, assaults and harassment. You know, if it's someone in, in your division or in your squadron or platoon and you report it, you know, many times women get backlash
2: from their own commands on this and
1: that needs to stop.
2: More often than not, that's the case, right? I've read about what Senator Gillibrand is doing, and I, I'm going to try to actually invite her to come on the podcast and share, you know, because I, I try not to get too far into the weeds, you know, and, and what, what's going on with politics and things like that. But this is very important, the MJIA and the and the legislation that she's working on right now is so important because you're right, it takes that power out of the command and gives it to a third party, um, which is only fair, right? When I would say most of the time the stories I hear, they don't really get fair equitable treatment. They say, oh, go to to alcohol treatment, you know, you have this issue or here's your other than honorable, they just kind of try to brush it under the rug, right? So if you have any um, if you have any contact with her, let her know that Lauren thanks her from the MSD podcast and <laughs> ask her if she ever wants to come on. We, we we'd love to um, to share her message with our listenership. Oh yeah, I want to ask you one question uh, before we wrap up here. I love your your Facebook page, and in um, your intro, you describe yourself in a few terms, and you say you're a dreamer, and it says that really does sum me up to a T. And when I see that, I just think that that's so great, you know, because. Uh, Man, when we get bogged down with the monotony of everyday life and with these labels that have been put on everybody, whether you're, you know, liberal, you know, Democrat, whatever it is, when you're a dreamer, I think we can all be dreamers. So what does that mean to you? I mean, what do you what do you really dream of? What does happiness look like, Amanda, going forward?
1: One of my big dreams is to run for public office one day to be that voice and to fight for those who don't have a voice. Um, you know, the, the few words that I chose to describe myself, you know, yes, I'm Catholic, I'm a person of faith, I'm liberal, I'm progressive, I'm an LGBT veteran, I sometimes feel like I'm a unicorn, <laughs> but with all of these things, they've shaped who I am. And even though I was discharged with an OTH, you know, I, I went to college for health administration and political science. And I, I've always liked politics, um, but it wasn't until late 2007 when my former debate team member from high school called me up and he's like, yeah, I'm working for this little-known guy. Uh, he's a junior senator from Illinois. His name's Barack Obama. And I'm like, dude, I know who you're talking about. <laughs> and because of everything that I went through in the military, I feel really strongly about healthcare reform and veterans issues and being an LGBTQ member. You know, these things are what have shaped me. And for me, dreaming to be a politician, which sounds horrible, <laughs> but I really want to make a bigger difference in my community. And uh, I've I've gotten the question a few times of what do you want people to remember you
2: when you die?
1: And I said, oh, my goal in life is to be so great that they name something after me.
2: That's a good one. I like that dream. I really do. I like the pol- I like the political dream too. Don't get me wrong. But uh, just be- even if you never make that, you still have a voice. Honestly, I um I've I've
1: been thinking about it. Um, I. It, it, it's very early to say this, but um, I will be running for Congress in 2020. Wow. Um, I've given myself a longer timeline so I can run an excellent campaign. I I could have ran this year and I know this year is going to be a big year, but I want to run the campaign right and I want to be the best version of me for my constituents which means waiting a few more years and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that.
2: There is not you And I think you're, you're just proving your brilliance now just by identifying that when you need a little more time, you know, and uh, I wish you luck with that campaign. Maybe we'll touch base in you know, two years and we'll chat again, see how the campaign went, see how you're, how you're doing. And uh, maybe I'll be calling you Congresswoman, Brinzel by then. Well, and that's,
1: That's a big thing, you know, especially with me running. I already know um, me running to bring up, you know, with my veteran status, raising the issue of sexual assault in the military and not just in the civilian world. But it's something that many people can relate to. And I think that's what will really help me is. I am
2: relatable,
1: and I have gone through these experiences, and I want to change them so other people don't have to.
2: Well, that that is very admirable work. I look forward to seeing you continue to grow in this field of work, and I'm just—I thank you so much for taking the time to share your story with us today, Amanda. Can't even tell you what a wonderful afternoon this was, and thank you so much again. You've given me. A little bit of gas in my tank to continue to fuel myself through this crazy, crazy um, world and, and these crazy issues we have nowadays, Amanda. Your voice is powerful. Keep using it. Well, thank you so much, Lauren.
0: And the words that I wrote before these just didn't make sense. Because it's coming out of my mouth, in my head. I hold back. And you might hear it someday. Would you break my heart if I give it to you? If I give it to
2: you? Oh, no. You are listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network.